My name's Domingo. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Domingo. My sobriety dates November the 21st of 1986, and that miracle is still working today, one day at a time. And yes, we did get lost. <laughs> God did show us the way. He always does. Even a Beltline exit happened real quick. There was no warning. And I'm on 75, and there it is all of a sudden. I scoot over to the right. Thank you, God. One more time. Not a single car in the way. (laughs) That was really great. Anyway, I am glad and honored to be asked and to be here. It's always a pleasure to speak somewhere. And I'm going to have to speak real quick. Talk fast, my sponsor says. Well, uh, my story is no different, I guess, than what I heard the rest of y'all share up here. And I'm kind of like you, what you said about the that color thing. Uh, funny, I'll tell you about that in just a little bit. But I want to tell you that uh, I was introduced to this program through a treatment facility also. And I, too, had to go through it a couple of times. And... Uh, the first time I did it for all the wrong reasons, I was pushed into it, and I didn't really know what was wrong with me. But uh, eventually, the picture started to take shape, and I'll share that with you. I started drinking when I was about the age of 12. I'm an ex-musician. I started playing the saxophone when I was in the fifth grade. By the time I was in the sixth grade, I was already playing with some local guys around town, and we were playing up and down North Main in Fort Worth, and so... We were playing at this one club one night, and we were just kind of like the intermission band for the big band. And the big band was coming up, so we we started the dance off that night, and uh, we took our intermission. Well, I'm sitting there, and of course, alcohol is being served. And one of the older musicians in the band asked me if I wanted a beer. Well, my dad brought me up. My dad was my higher power. I'll put that in advance right now because he was my god. My father was everything that I ever I ever looked up to. And uh, so this one musician asked me if I wanted a beer. And uh, I told him, no, I, I better not, because for one thing, I'm not old enough, and I would probably get in trouble, and oh, all, everything that could go along that, that line right there. And so he said, it's no big deal. We'll put it in the styrofoam cup. Nobody will know what you're drinking. So he did. He went and bought me a beer. I bought the drink. He put it in a cup, and, and I sat there, and I drank that beer. And... Uh, all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and I'm starting to get some rhythm. <laughs> and uh, by the time I get back on stage, that horn is practically playing by itself. <laughs> and the phenomena of craving, whatever it is that triggered this thing up here, I was ready for the intermission. And this time, he didn't have to ask me if I wanted a beer uh, I asked him if he'd go get me a beer, and I even thought it, about it a little further. I thought, well, if one did that, I wonder what two will do. Will you buy me two beers? <laughs> <laughs> and so here we started a a routine, a pattern that became my music, my saxophone, and later liquor came into the picture. <clears throat> I started playing in bigger bands and where we played in real nice nightclubs now, and they serve liquor. And I found out that a little glass of that could do with six cans of those. And so, and then I found out that I, I, I started playing with an alto saxophone. It's a smaller saxophone. And then I moved up to a tenor sax. And it's a much bigger saxophone, and a, it's a bigger case. And I could carry at least uh, two pints in that thing. <laughs> so I had a portable bar in there. 
And I would fix my drinks backstage and carry them upstage on stage, put them right next to me wherever I was playing, and and uh, I was set for the night. And this is the this is the pattern that went through, on through. Uh, it was junior high school back then. They called it middle school today. And then uh, on through high school, I, m I managed to graduate. Uh, the only thing I remember about graduation is uh, walking across uh, that stage, shaking somebody's hand and receiving something. My mom finally showed me my diploma one here a while back because I couldn't really remember what I got. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and coming, I rem the next thing I do is I remember coming to at somebody's house and uh, that, you know, this is the way it went. And this, this, this started from the age of 12. We were coming up here, and I, I tell my sponsor, and I was telling my friend Walter, most of my spiritual awakenings or my God comes to me in strange places. The best places I've found so far is the potty. I sit there, and, <laughs> and uh, I was trying to think uh, how, long, how long I drank. Well, I, I was born in 52, and I, I was... 12, so that means I, that was six, uh, 64, and I got sober in 86, so that was 22 years. That was real, real easy to figure out, and I thought I drank longer. Shucks, I missed the mark, you know. But anyway, graduated, moved on, and uh, I uh, hired on with a telephone company, SBC now, used to be called Southwestern Bell, and that was kind of interesting. I was fixing to turn 21, and uh, that night, it was my birthday, it was on a Sunday, my belly button birthday is on January the 7th, and I hired on on January the 8th. Well, that night, I went, partied and everything, and celebrated my birthday, like every other day, every day was my birthday, I guess. <laughs> and so the next day, I went to apply, and of course, uh, gosh, I was so hungover, I was so sick, and bloodshot eyes, and I was just sweating, alcohol coming out the pores of your arms, and... And I went and they asked me if, if, I, if I could take a written test. And I took the written test and I passed that. And then they said, can you take a, uh, a personal interview? They want to see how well I could communicate since I'm going to deal with public. And uh, I remember someone, I don't know whether it was my father or who it was, that told me that whenever you're dealing with business negotiations, always maintain eye contact. They said, if you maintain eye contact, they know you mean business. So <laughs> eye contact with sweat coming out and everything. <laughs> eye contact was there. And so I managed to pass the personal interview. Then they, they had me go take a physical. I took, took the physical, passed that. And the mind said, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't drink that much. Because by this time, I'm 21 years old. And I'm, I'm concerned about my drinking patterns, my behavior, and all the trouble that I'm getting into. And so I hired on, and I, they sent me over here to Dallas to school for a month, and I hired on as a lineman. And we do the lineman, uh, we do all the pole climbing and putting the big cables up on the on the poles and hooking up your lines and everything else. But it was a one-month school, and they paid uh, for me to stay in school over here at the I think it was the Holiday Inn back then at that time. And I'd had a club that stayed open till 2 o'clock every night. And I closed that place up every night, every, every day that I stayed over here. So I, I landed a good job, good pay, room and board, and partying every night. And I managed to make it through the school. Now, working in the line gang was, was kind of fun because uh, we were all young. And it's hard, heavy, rough work. I, 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 don't, I know I couldn't do it today, but... Uh, 
we would get we I would get pretty hungover sometimes, and uh, I would get uh, caught up on on some situations where this one time I was up on this telephone pole, and we had already placed all the new lines and stuff, and and it was time to transfer the telephone lines going to the house over to the new cable. So in that process, you have to call in to the inside folks, and and uh, they do the inside wiring so that dial tone will come on the new cable, and you can move the line over. Well, sometimes they put you on hold, and uh, you're sitting up on a pole. Well, this one particular morning, I was so hungover and so sick, and uh, they put me on hold, and so I got comfortable. I'm <laughs> safetyed off up there, and I've got my spikes in the pole, and uh, this pole has uh, steps on it also, but I always like to put my hooks on anyway because I could work around the pole real good. And anyway, I'm safety off, I'm, I'm comfortable, and I, I passed out. I fell asleep. <laughs> and the next thing I know is my boss is down there with these long sticks that we use. <laughs> and he's trying to wake me up. And he said, uh, he was concerned. He said, somebody's called in. Some ladies called in and said there's a dead man on the pole. <laughs> and... I talk about that when I share my experience with the steps because, you know, being that this is a spiritual program, and when I say I, I kid around with the God deal, God is for real, man. I mean, he was there then. I could have easily fell off that thing, and, uh, you know, just it was amazing. And plus, I got into a lot of other troubles besides that. I mean, and I, I found some folks working in the line gang that drank like I did. Every day after work, we'd shoot to a place called the river, Right there on Randall Mill Road, off of Hanley Etterville Road and uh, in Fort Worth. And so it was a, for two years I was a lineman. After that I became a repairman. And uh, as a repairman, I came, knocked on your door, told you I was here to fix your phone. And uh, if, if the wind was blowing just right and you got a good whiff of me, you'd probably say, you know, my phone's working fine. You can <laughs> and... Uh, a lot of times I, I got told that. It's a couple of times I got, they called in and said, don't ever send that man back over here again. But uh, I would go to the storeroom, pick up my truck, swing by the house for my morning break, take a few shots of whiskey, go work on a couple of cases of trouble, swing back by the house, lunchtime, more whiskey, go out and work some more trouble, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, swing by the house, more whiskey. By 5 o'clock, I'm stumbling and everything else. And... Plus, I could also tuck it under my van in, in my truck and park in an alley and just, and it was it was just a pretty neat pattern, you know. I enjoyed it. Nobody said much on it, but uh, as the years passed, eventually I started to get real sick, and I had no earthly clue what was wrong. I had no idea what was happening to me, and I got so sick that I had to go to the hospital. I mean, I was just totally dehydrated. I couldn't hold nothing down. And so they started running all these tests on me, uh, wondering what was wrong. Of course, the doctor, it was a lady doctor, female, and she pretty much had an idea. But I, I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to give in to the fact that uh, when they asked, do you, how much do you drink? Oh, an occasional beer here and there. You know, that was my answer. But uh, liquor was my, my thing, and I drank for the effect. There was nothing sociable about my drinking. I drank for that effect and the effect only. And so uh, after about four days of test, they came back and said I had something called hepatitis. And so I said, uh, 
well, what is this hepatitis? And they explained it to me, and uh, they said the kind I had was nothing infectious, but it was just kind of, uh, they noticed the yellower skin, the yellowish in the eyes, and jaundice and what have you. And so I asked the question, I said, well, how do you get this hepatitis thing? And they said, well, a lot of times you can get it from somebody that has an infectious type hepatitis, or you can get it from an unsterile needle, or you can get it from excessive drinking, a lot of alcohol drinking. Well, yeah, I thought the old mind started thinking again, and I thought, you know, I had a lot of dental work done. (laughs) And uh, at one time or another, I bet they stuck a dirty needle in there. And I told that doctor, I said, that's probably where I got that hepatitis. And she's like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. mm -hmm." (laughs) So the only cure for that was a strict diet, strict rest, and she said no alcohol for six weeks. And, I mean, I'd never been that sick. I'd never been in the hospital. And, yes, ma'am, no alcohol for six weeks, and I did that. Well, I managed to follow the instructions and everything and went back, got some blood work done, and they said everything looked good. She said everything looks good. Looks like you can go back to work now. And all I heard is everything looks so good. Looks like you can go back to drinking now. And I had six weeks of drinking to make up, and, boy, I jumped on that. Within a year, I had a relapse of the same thing, and this time they stuck me back in the hospital again, and they did a biopsy and to see how bad my liver was, and and uh, fortunately, well, it was pretty bad, but fortunately, they said we need to. They, how much are you? Do you have a problem with drinking? And I said, no. Why do you keep asking? And, <laughs> and uh, so. Uh, that was the main concern there, it was uh, the drinking. And so if this doctor can't figure it out, let's go to another doctor. So that's what I did, went to another doctor. And then this is the next time that I went to see this other doctor, and he started running some tests and doing this and doing that and all that. And then he said, uh, do you have a problem with drinking? I said, wait a minute. I just left one with that same silly question. And he had the guts, the nerve to tell me, have you ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm like, Alcoholics Anonymous? To begin with, the word alcoholic just sounded so filthy. I mean, alcoholic. (laughs) That's a nasty word. When I was a repairman, I had a a case of trouble that I would get dispatched on the calls. And one of my calls was... uh, I play, it was a, they, they classify everything by the residence or business or whatever, PBX and whatever. And so this particular case of trouble that I was going on was considered a business, and it was a payphone, and it was for something called Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I thought, you're going to send me to a place like that? And uh, they said, yeah, they're having trouble with their payphone, and... Um, and it's uh, on some address in Fort Worth. It's I, if you're familiar with some of the old groups in Fort Worth, it used to be the old 24-hour group on Jerome Street. And it's located where this group was located is in a residential area. And so I got there, I found the address, and I looked. I looked at it. It, a, it looked like a house to me. And I thought, well, this doesn't look like a business. So anyway, the doors were open. I parked my truck, and I went in there, and, and I uh, walked in. I said, I'm here to work on the payphone. And I looked around, and all I saw was a bunch of old men sitting around drinking coffee and eating donuts. And then I looked at my ticket again. I said, Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, oh, I see now. This is where the winos come, and they give them coffee and donuts. And 
They, they make them comfortable here. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, show me where this payphone is, and I need to get out of here. I may catch something, you know, and <laughs> fix this phone and get out of here. And that was the only time I ever got exposed to, to whatever was called Alcoholics Anonymous back then. Anyway, when I got, got the second touch of this uh, illness, this hepatitis thing, of course, uh, they said, well, we're going to have to put you on light duty for, for about a year. Well, then they said, you can't work outside because you're exposed to everything out there. You're going to have to go inside. So I went inside, and I started working inside. Well, I was no more had the you know freedom of going by the house and taking my breaks and doing what I did when I was outside. So uh, I had to find a way to do things a little bit different. So I realized that I could either pay, I think it was like $3 or $4 or $5 a day to park downtown. That's where I had to go work downtown inside. Or I could park at a parking meter. Now, the parking meters had to be fed every two hours. So I thought, well, this is going to work great. I'll get there, feed the meter in two hours, 10 o'clock. I'll go out there, put some money in the meter, put a little juice in me, go back. Lunchtime, go out. Put a lot of juice in me, go back to the meter, come out at 3 o'clock, feed the meter, put a little juice in me, and then go back. I had it all figured out, except the thing is I was falling asleep inside, and <laughs> and it smelled a little bit. And somebody said, well, if you drink vodka, they won't smell it. I said, cool. You know, I'll drink vodka. Well, that smelled too. And I got a little loud, a little obnoxious. And, <laughs> and next thing I know, I'm going a lot behind closed doors with management and union representatives and they want to know what the problem is and uh, is is uh, are you going to get well so you can go back outside <laughs> I think they're trying to get rid of me or or are they trying to help me or what but um, this happened a lot and then as time was going on I told you about my dad and my dad was he's kind of the core that we all as his kids there's uh, there's uh, Let's see, three boys and one girl, four of us. And then my mom, and he's what kind of kept it together. And, you know, if you step on an ant pile, you know, the ants just kind of scatter all over the place. Well, when he passed away, that's basically what happened to all of us. But uh, anyway, uh, he was one of these hard outside guys that worked construction, and he never would go see the doctor. It was one of these, uh, this too shall pass, or the home remedies would take care of it. And couldn't get him to go see the doctor for nothing. And eventually he got so sick that, that he had to go to the doctor, and by that time it was too late, they realized he had cancer. Well, uh, that was kind of shocking because you, as me as a person, I, I, I would see it in the movies. I'd hear about it in other families where uh, a family member has come down with cancer, but when it hits home like that, it just it just doesn't seem real. It just seems too too hard. And so I, it was hard to swallow, hard to accept. And as his days were getting shorter, uh, he refused to take any kind of chemo or treatment or anything. He just said, if it's going to make me sicker, I might as well just enjoy what the time I have left and, and uh, not worry about having to get sick and everything. And it was in late August of 85, and it was probably his last week. And I was down there, and I was drunk, and I looked up into the sky, and I, it was a beautiful night. And... And the stars were shining, and I was brought up Catholic. Uh, I knew about God. My father was was a very uh, 
he was retired, very religious type person. Uh, retired, he did everything for the church. I mean, he did everything for anybody. That's why I said he was my God. He was he was my hero. And so I went in the backyard and I looked up into the sky and I just said a simple little prayer, and which I never really prayed, but this one was sincere. And I said, God, if you're for real, uh, you're going to save my dad. This cancer, he's not going to die of no cancer. And uh, that was basically it. That's all I said. And a few days later, he passed away. Well, when that happened right there, well, that just opened up the door to to uh, just ex- extreme downhill for me. Uh, for one thing, I became completely agnostic. I just, you know, you... All this time, you're supposed to be this and that, and you're nothing but... And everything that I could think of negative and bad and shameful and tactful and whatever, I addressed to God. And I made it real clear I didn't want to have anything to do with Him from from here on. And, of course, that started to wear on me, and, and the, the drinking got heavier, and I, it was showing a lot more at work. And we were going behind closed doors just a little bit more often. And our union representatives were saying, well, you know, you got to have a little bit of sympathy here. The dad passed away and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of leaned on that. And my man, my managers, they say, well, what's his dad passing away have to do with his drinking? He's got to work, you know. And the day came where they booted me out the door pending termination. So my pity pot went home and all this and all that. And I had a phone call from a friend of mine in the union. He was a repairman also. And uh, he said, uh, listen, this lady's going to call you. We want you to listen to what she has to say. And uh, if you can, meet with her. And maybe we can save your job. Well, I thought, that's all I heard. Maybe we can save your job. I didn't hear anything about a problem with alcohol or anything. So this lady did call. She was calling from Arlington. It was a uh, some location over here off of 360, right across from Six Flags. They were located in an office suite in that area. So this particular day, I think it was on a on a Tuesday, I went down there and I found the place and this cute little gal greeted me at the door, asked me to come in, sit down, and and she said, we'll be right with you. Well, I'm sitting in there and I get to looking around and I'm looking inside there and I, you know, they'll have uh, these frames with uh, little diplomas or what have you and little items like that. And on one of them, it was a certificate of some sort. And I was reading it, and I saw the word treatment. And I thought, oh, man. I thought, this is as low as you can go. And then, as sick as I was, I'm thinking, man, I've done disgrace my race. (laughs) (laughs) See, because I work downtown every morning, and every morning... As I drove in to go park, I would see white winos, I'd see black winos, but I never saw Mexican winos. <laughs> and when I saw that word treatment, I knew what was coming next. They're going to say I got a problem with drinking or something. I know that's what the, that's leading to. And uh, I'm going to be the first Mexican wino, I guess, or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> so they came out as a. A guy and a, and a guy, a gal, and we went back to another room. And they, the 20-question routine and how much do you drink? I lied. They laughed, and 
They asked, <laughs> they asked all these questions. I kept lying. They kept laughing, and I, I was being sincere, and they thought it was funny. I didn't see no humor in none, none of my answers. And, of course, the alcohol was just gushing and pouring. I looked like a sprinkler right here. You know? And uh, after all was said and done, they said, you're an alcoholic. And I knew they were telling me the truth. And I thought, well, I guess I am. Oh, and my mind is just racing now. God, what a, I've disgraced the Chicano race, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is. And so uh, I, it was set. They set a date. I was to go to treatment on that Thursday. Or, yeah, I think it was Thursday or a Friday. I can't remember. And. Uh, so I left from there, and I got on division heading back towards Fort Worth, and I found the first liquor store right before you get to Loop 820, and I had to settle the nerves. Boy, I chucked down some liquor and uh, got home, and my wife said, well, what'd they say? And, and I told them, I said, well, they, they said, I'm an alcoholic. And boy, she took it worse than I did. <laughs> she said, oh, no, you're not. She said, you drink a lot, but you're not no alcoholic. And uh I mean, she took it so bad, I didn't even tell her I was going to treatment. I'll wait another day for that. <laughs> and sure enough, the next day I told her, you need to start packing me some clothes. And she said, what for? And I told her, and she said, no, nah, you ain't going nowhere. I said, yeah, I have to. And so, uh, but you know, prior to this, I want to put the, throw this in there real quick. Um, I don't know if you all are familiar with what a quinceanera is. Okay, it's like a sweet 16, and it's a, a church ceremony, dinner, and a big dance afterwards. Anyway, my oldest daughter was fixing to turn 15, and this was already in the making a year prior to all these, all this excitement going on. And uh, so I, the treatment facility was down in the hill country, and um, they made arrangements that I could fly back to DFW and, uh, for that weekend and then go back and finish my treatment. So I'd been down in her treatment for 10 days. My wife picked me up at DFW, and I'm driving back, and I could see her from the corner of my eye, and she was just staring at me. And finally I looked at her, and I said, what are you looking at? And she says, what are they doing to you? And I said, nothing. <laughs> she said, why? She said, you look so different. Well, you know, 10 days, well, probably 10 days of not drinking for one thing, but uh, 10, days of, 10 days of a solution. I heard somebody say the solution. Ten days of that right there was already starting to show on the outside. Something was happening in the inside, but something was showing on the outside. And I said, no, they're not doing nothing to me. It's just All we do is just sit around, people cry and this and that, and they hug. <laughs> and so I managed to make the weekend, went back, finished my tour and all this. Okay, I went to treatment. I'm back. Well, I've uh, probably heard the term, you're as sick as the secrets that you keep. I had a lot of secrets. As far as anybody was concerned, nobody knew I had gone to treatment. All my coworkers did. You know, we're in the, they're supposed to, uh, the company says, this is all strictly confidential. No, nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows where you've been. And <clears throat> we're in the communication business, huh? <laughs> so... Anyway, uh, my wife and my daughter were the only ones in family that knew. And uh, as far as uh, other family members, I'd been off to another school. They, always, they were always sending me. When I was a repairman, I was going off to schools all the time out of, out of town. So I'd been, uh, I was away for four weeks to a, a school. And, uh, but uh, now when they asked where, where am I going every night at 8 o'clock, well, that was none of their business. But uh, I knew I had to go to meetings. But anyway... I went for all the wrong reasons. I came back uh, 
something happened. Something did happen down there. And uh, and what it was is the inside had changed, and it wanted so badly to express itself on the outside, but the outside was still the mingle, the egotistical, the the uh, just the the pride, the pride and the ego. I still had to prove to everybody I was still this, you know, this bede, you know, and and uh, I was having a tug of war. The inside wanted to express itself. The outside just kept pressing it back in. Nah, no, no, no. So it was a, I, there was no peace. There was no harmony. There was no serenity there. There wasn't sobriety. I just wasn't drinking. So I'm going to meetings. Uh, I got a sponsor just to say I got a sponsor. I, I had the big book. Didn't really touch it. And uh, I got a 90-day chip. And ten days later, I drank. Ten days later, I drank. For the first time in my life, I felt completely defeated because all my life, I'm a perfectionist, or my wife says I am anyway. All my life, I have always conquered or beat whatever it is I went against. And alcohol beat me to the ground, and I couldn't believe it. I could not believe something like just a liquid could just do that to me. Changed the way I felt, changed the way I, I acted, changed everything about me. I mean, just for one month, I went through everything that I had gone through in the past 22 years. I got it right now. And uh, I couldn't believe it. People in AA told me, you know, that first drink, I'm like, oh, y'all so weak. And, you know, <laughs> people on AA told me it keeps getting worse. I said, yeah, right. You know, everything that, that Alcoholics Anonymous, this fellowship told me, I had to experience. I have gone through this program, worked the steps, and have shared the steps with hands-on techniques. Everything that I have done working with my sponsor and doing the steps, I have had personal training, and that personal training has been pain. I had had to experience that pain so that I could learn from it. And it was probably the only way I was going to learn anything. Because if I just read something, I say, oh, cool. It doesn't do anything to me. So I had to experience this pain. And that pain, I went back. I had to go back. And this time I took management behind closed doors. And I told them, I said, I know my insurance probably paid the first treatment. If, if I have to pay for this out of my own pocket, for the rest of my life, I'll go back. And then I went out to my co-workers and I told them, and this time it's for real. When you read the headlines on the newspaper, you will see first Mexican alcoholic discovered in Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did. I went back and uh, it, it, was, it was, this is what I needed. I, that was what I was looking for. It was, I wanted that serenity. I wanted that peace because I did experience it. I experienced that, that change that probably just not drinking for 30 days it was one thing. But then again, everything that this program had to offer, they would take us to AA meetings. We were exposed to AA. And then, of course, dealing with a lot of things that, uh, you know, they kind of do your fourth step when you're in treatment. That's why everybody sat around and cried and stuff because they, they were shedding all the stuff that they've been carrying with them forever and ever. But I never realized that, that I didn't have to, I have to do this on my own. These steps are in plural form. There's nothing singular about those steps. It, everything is in plural. And 
All my life, I've always done everything on my own. I've never needed any any assistance in any way to do anything. And this program is not an I program. This program is a we program. I need I need y'all. I need the sponsor. And like the discipline. Somebody said they needed discipline in your life. I did too. And so the first time I came and I got a sponsor, I thought maybe if I look for the ugliest guy, the oldest guy, and the most raunchiest guy, He'll be rough on me. Well, the guy died on me, you know, and so I. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have a sponsor that, uh, and that was when I asked Dino to be my sponsor. I had already like four years into the program. Still, I was, I was climbing this ladder. I was grabbing everything that I could get a hold of, and I was wanting everything that this program had to offer. But. There was something missing there. There was still something missing. There's a phrase in there, the easier, softer way. I know that I was still doing a lot of the easier, softer way. I know that I was still doing a lot of the uh, listening to what I wanted to and not what I needed to. And uh, Dana was sponsoring quite a few other guys, and, and they, they were always sharing about how he had them do this and do that. And I said, man, this program has to offer uh, the – I wouldn't be up here, and I wouldn't – feel the way I feel. I wouldn't have the gratitude that I have today because every time that I would, every time that I get into a situation, whether it's at work or whatever, financial insecurities or work, uh, I have this sponsor that will put me to work and just forget, make me get out of self. I mean, I thought I was going to have to go back to my old ways there when I Finally went back outside. I'm working outside again. I'm a cable, telephone cable splicer outside. I'm doing that rough job again. I'm still climbing poles and everything. Uh, I'm not falling asleep on them anymore, but, <laughs> but, uh, I enjoy it now. I went outside like a little kid. All of a sudden they got all these new meters. When I was out working outside, we just had one little old meter and it did, you know, everything. Now they got everything digital and this and that. And I'm like, God, what is it? It's new toys, you know, so let's learn to play with them. But the thing is, I look forward to work. You know, I enjoy work. But there was a time there for a year where uh, I don't know what happened that uh, sometimes, you know, those people, they're sicker than we are. And they don't have a program. These are the normal people. And just because somebody's happy, well, they want to make your life miserable just because they're miserable. And so I was telling my sponsor, I said, you know, I'm going to catch these guys one at a time as they drive out of the driveway and just remind them who I am. And he says, no, what you're going to do is you're going to go do the steps of this group and this group and this group. And God, for a whole year I had to go do the steps. Every group, I don't know where he sent me, but it worked. It really did. And what it, what I'm getting at is it's a fellowship. It's a solution to a way of life. It's a peace that uh, that we have. It's a bond that we have. It's an understanding that we have that we can see each other's pain or can enjoy each other's joy. But at the same time, we all share that one common goal, and that's we don't have to drink. One day at a time, a minute at a time, five minutes, hour, whatever. And the next thing you know is uh, it's passed. I made it. I made another day. I made another 24 hours. I made another year. I'll be celebrating 18 years this month. That's amazing. That is really amazing. Uh, 
when I say that miracle is still working one day at a time, it is. People see me today, people are still afraid of me. They really are. And that's mostly family members. Um, <laughs> which, I don't mind. <laughs> you know, I walk in and shh, boy, it gets quiet, you know. <laughs> that's, that's all right. I'm here. <laughs> but I still like to kid around with them. I just, what? You know, just look at them. And <laughs> I enjoy it. I love this way of life, and I thank you all for having me, and I make my amends for getting lost and being late. Uh, and my sponsor owes me $20. <laughs>